Hey guys, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January 25th, 2019, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for the Expert Council Q&A show of the week. Here's what we have today. Building a better world versus just being mad at the bad guys. It's a new book coming out from Paul Wheaton. We're going to hear about that today. Uh, Chef Keith Snow is going to tell us about nixtamalization. What the hell is that? You know, it involves corn, and well, you'll find out because Keith's going to tell you all about it. Next, you know, we just had Doc Bones on to talk about stocking up on antibiotics, but I've heard from quite a few of you, and I sent one of the requests on the Doc saying, hey, you know, I, I got Doc's book on antibiotics, and they cover an awful lot of antibiotics, and some of these antibiotics seem to kind of sort of kind of do the same sort of thing, or at least be used for the same conditions. If I had to pick a small list of them, because I can't afford or don't want to have all of them in my preps, what would be the most bang for the buck? Doc's going to take that one on. What about Nosema in the beehive? What is that? What the heck do you do about it? The bee warden, uh, the bee warden, the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan, will tell us all about that. How about effective email list building and email marketing? We're going to hear about that from Nicole, awesome sauce. Dealing with ear infections in your dogs, more or less trying to prevent them with Dr. Kelly. Lessons from the recent market correction from John Pugliano. And the tactical to the practical for long-range rifles. I got a question on, is it really a big, you, know, you really should you even consider getting a tactical long-range, like, 308 or other caliber uh, rifle? Or is really, you know, it, it should be better to go with a good quality hunting rifle. And what is there, is there any real difference between the two? Well, I'll take that one on, and I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm a little biased on that one, and I'll explain why when I get to it. But that's what we're going to cover today. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and dive right on in, headlong into it. Let's hear from Paul Wheaton. I'm pretty excited about this new project that Paul has. And I think it's going to be a really uh, awesome, awesome book. And uh, he's going to be running it as his eighth Kickstarter. He's going to be looking for our help, and you'll hear more about that from me on how you can uh, support him when it comes. But here's what's coming. Paul, take it away, man. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com. I am here with... Sean Klotz and Coop. And we are writing a book. So a couple, uh, so yesterday, yesterday, Jack, I was talking to you about this book and you said, Oh, put that in the expert council. So, uh, here's Sean and I making our attempt to, uh, to get it in here and tell you about the book and about our Kickstarter. So our Kickstarter will probably start in a week, maybe a little more than a week. Uh, we've got the, the beginnings of it put together, and, but, a, but the most important thing is that after one year of working on it every day, uh, we now have the, like the book is done. So, uh, uh, Sean has put in a lot more sweat during the last year than I have. I, I put in all the sweat like before. So, uh, uh, Sean, uh, you took, so you're one of my podcast listeners, right? That's right. And so in some podcast, I mentioned something like, man, if somebody wanted to step up and take all the stuff I wrote and mash it into a book, that'd be mighty handy. And so uh, I believe you heard that podcast and you emailed me. Yeah, I applied for the position. And out of all of the candidates, I decided you were the very best. Yeah. Of course, it was kind of a short line. You were the only candidate. <laughs> it's okay. 
But now, now, uh, we have spent a lot of time, uh, on this together, an enormous track of time. And, uh, what started off as a simple thing, we kept deciding to do better and better and better. And so, wow, here it is a year later. It's been a year, man. Yeah. But the book is done. So the book is called Building a Better World in Your Backyard Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys. Uh, Sean grabbed a bunch of articles and stuff, mashed it up into a huge book, and then we whittled it back down to just 200 pages. The book is very much for people in an apartment as well as people with a yard or with acres, and the book is divided into several pieces. The, the, so it's got five pieces, six, there's six parts to the book. We start off with the introduction kind of stuff, and then we start uh, breaking it down for the, in, the introduction talks about the problems that most people uh, think of, and then it goes into the solutions. And so this is the big part of the book is just the solutions. And it's broken up into the first part is general life strategies, finances, things that are like anywhere, pretty much within yourself. Um, they, they don't have to do with, you know, physical land or property. Uh, the next part is about inside of your house. Uh, and so we talk about uh, really saving energy, not the stuff that's the greenwashing that you're told about. And I think that's a big part of the book. The next part is going to be stuff that you could do in your backyard. And so we start talking about gardens and things of that nature. And uh, harvesting electricity, gray water systems, things of that nature. And uh, and then the final part of the book is the homesteading level. So when you can have a few acres and the things you could do. And then we start talking about uh, poop beasts, uh, replacing petroleum with people, raising animals, the difference between an orchard and a food forest, uh, the wafati, natural swimming pools, things of that nature. The core of this book, you know, what it, what it is, is that uh, we think that there is a lot of misinformation out there about problem and, uh, and problems that are real. There's misinformation about real problems. And then there's also misinformation about fictitious problem. And we break these problems down into something more tangible. And then we lay out the numbers to prove what is greenwashing and what really makes a difference. In the end, the solution to most things is not light bulbs electric cars, or veganism, but gardening. Now, we do cover a lot of other stuff like rocket mass heaters and and several other things. Um, uh, gardening. <laughs> and because uh, so much is about our food and then all of the, the awful behind the food. And then, of course, when you grow a garden, there's uh, so much more to be said. Now, I think that we've got like, what, probably about 12 pages talking about gardening techniques. So it's like, I don't know, we've taken like uh, 15 books and tried to smash it down and to get it to fit into just 12 pages. Am I saying this about right? Is it about 12 pages? Yeah, 12 pages. Okay, but we've got so many other things to talk about. Something had to go. And it, and it just, it seems like the whole book is about trying to get, I don't know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say 20,000 pages to fit into 200 pages. I know that as you and I were going line by line through this thing, there was so much we deleted um, to, to compress it all down. And so it's the it's the best of the best of the best. Yeah. Um, so the delete key was our primary uh, tool in all of this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this will be my eighth Kickstarter. Uh, and um, I am just super crazy nervous. I've, uh, so we're going to ask for uh, $8,860. The Kickstarter isn't up yet. It should be in about 10 days. I am, I am super nervous about getting funded 
at all. Um, this is the lowest item price I've ever had for a Kickstarter. So like I've had a lot of Kickstarters where I was asking for like, Oh, if you give me a hundred bucks, I'll give you this. I'll give you this four DVD set for a hundred bucks. So we're saying that for 10 bucks, we're going to give people two ebooks. And so it's like 10 bucks is the lowest ask price that we've, that I've ever done for any Kickstarter in the past. Although my last Kickstarter, I asked for $15 for my lowest ticket item and it came in at 80,000. So there's hope, but that was a DVD and I've made a lot of DVDs and this will be my very first book. Anyway, um, I, I, part of it is, is that I know of people that put out like an ebook a day and it's kind of like, I, we're not doing that. This has been a whole year's worth of effort. And there's like this whole thing of like, what if nobody likes the book? <laughs> so will we get funded at all? But at the same time, when you do a Kickstarter, it gives you license to get dreamy, kind of like when buying a lottery ticket. Like, what if everybody likes the book? <laughs> what, if, what if the Kickstarter does really great? Ah, super nervous, super excited. You know, we're in the, we're in the, 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 the final run here of getting ready for the Kickstarter. The video is almost complete. I think the video looks really good. Uh, Jack asked for permission to play the audio of the video. And so I gave him permission. I don't know if he will or not, but here's the other thing. We were so nervous about whether we get funded at all. We decided we needed to come up with some extra strategies on this and we, we came up with a couple of things. One is, is that the whole book is designed to be bought by the dozen and given away. So what we're hoping is that people uh, will be like, yes, this book says what I think. And I want to infect more people with this stuff. So, so then they're going to buy it by the box and give it away in, in that way. So we've designed the whole thing that way. And we've, We've redesigned the permies.com software to have gift codes so people can buy like 30 gift codes and then be giving them away to a bunch of people in a variety of different ways, both anonymously or not anonymously, whatever. So we've, we've really super tested the gift code system over at permies.com. And the other thing that we're doing is we're giving away lots of stuff at the $1 and $5 levels of the Kickstarters. And for a lot of the things we've done this before and it's been a huge success in, in past Kickstarters. But this time what we're doing is we're saying that instead of just saying, Oh, you get one of these and one of these and one of these, the $1 level, we're saying you get four of these and four of these and four of these at the $1 level. And so I think that that's a, I'm hoping it's going to make a big difference, but you just, you just never know until you actually start the Kickstarter and see what happens. Anyway. All right. That's all my notes. Uh, uh, Sean, <laughs> as usual, you're pretty quiet. Um, anything to add? Nope. I think you covered it all. Okay. Thanks for helping me make this recording for Jack. <laughs> Bye, Jack. Bye. I am pretty excited about uh, Paul's new project. He's pretty good at Kickstarters. I think he's underselling himself a little bit here on his uh, chances of success. I know this community will be interested in helping him have a success with this. What this really is is a uh, an evil plot to take over the world by making people think about things and do smart things for themselves that really make sense for everybody. And uh, Paul's pretty good at that, and uh, by he's actually taking a formula here from an author that I know from many, many, many years ago named James Redfield, who wrote a book called Selstein Prophecy. Uh, he's doing it different because there was no internet back when Redfield came out with his book, but Redfield was a guy that could not get his book published, and he thought he had something that was really worth publishing. 
And this was the days in self-publishing where you had to go basically pay somebody to print hard copies of books. There were no e-books. There was no print-on-demand like CreateSpace or whatever. So he took out a loan, scraped up what money he could, and the minimum order he could get was 3,000 books. And he gave away 3,000 books. And his, his condition was if he gave you a book that you had to agree that when you read it, first of all, before you took it, you agreed you would read it. And then number two... When you were done reading it, if you thought it was a good book, you would give it to somebody. And if you didn't think it was a good book, you would give it back. So that you could give it to somebody that might think it was a good book. None of them came back. But The Celestine Prophecy became a best-selling uh, book, a New York Times bestseller, and launched a whole series of books. And you may or may not like it if you read it, but the idea of having people take what you have and recommending it to other people is the, the best form of viral marketing that's ever existed. The Internet makes it more scalable, but it's certainly not new, and I look forward to helping Paul spread his virus of thinking about what we're doing and living intentionally. Before we uh, go too long on that, let's go ahead and get our next uh, expert council member on for this week, Chef Keith Snow. Uh, he's going to talk about nixtamalization. This is something that involves corn. That's all I'll say, and I'll let Keith take the rest of it. Hey, Jeff Keats, know HarvestEating.com and the Harvest Eating Podcast. Wanted to answer Sam in the Snowy North's question about cornmeal needing to be nixtamalized. Now, that's a uh, interesting word, nixtamalization. And uh, Sam basically wanted to know um, if her cornmeal, if she grinds corn for cornmeal, does it need to go through that process? Now, just a little primer on that for those of you that aren't familiar with the term. Nixtamalization is basically when um, certain dried corn is treated um, in a solution, and it's a very alkaline solution, usually has lime in it or sometimes uh, wood ash and lye. And uh, what this does is it kind of breaks the corn down and enables it to become um, what's used in tortillas and um, other things like tamales. And this is masa, and masa harina is what they call it. That is this treated corn flour. Now, you can't make uh, tortillas with ground-up corn meal. doesn't matter how fine you get it. It is not treated properly, so it, it does not work. Um, also, there's something called hominy, and that's basically field corn that's dried, and then it's treated by soaking it in this, you know, dilute solution like this. And, um, you know, either it's sodium hydroxide or if it's using lime, that's calcium hydroxide. And that's the specific process. It is still done in Mexico today, both in large um, settings where they're making hundreds of thousands of tortillas, but also off the beaten path, you know, on Mexican homesteads and little villages, they still use this nixtamalization process. Now, does it really apply, you know, to Sam here? Um, does it help get nutrients out? Well, there's a lot of people um, that talk about anti-nutrients in many different foods and that, um, you know, like nuts, for instance, by soaking them overnight, this can help remove some of these anti-nutrients. And it also makes the, um, you know, the nut or um, oats or wheat berries or what have you or cornmeal. It tends to make it more digestible and um, allows more of the nutrients that are contained within to become bioavailable. Now, I haven't read any in-depth studies on this, but um, I have soaked many things, including 
cornmeal. And for instance, I make um, a really nifty cornbread. It's I call it a kettle cornbread. It's sweet and a little teeny bit salty. It's got butter and eggs and cream. It's a wonderful thing. Um, but I use a medium ground, you know, very coarse organic cornmeal. Uh, to make that. And that stuff is, you know, basically like miniature gravel. And if you just mix that into a regular sort of concoction for cornbread or corn muffins, you're going to be chewing on miniature gravel because even in the baking process, it will not sort of break it down. So oftentimes when I make it, I will soak that uh, overnight in water and most of the water is absorbed so it affects the recipe a little bit but it allows that stuff when it's uh, processed later either by making it into you know just uh cooking it on the stove or by baking it in a bread it enables it to be used more properly so sam you can definitely use soaking uh your your corn to um help with some of the uh nutrient bioavailability but i you know i really wouldn't advise making um, masa myself. Sure, it could be done. It might be a great project. I'm going to include a link for Jack to a way more in-depth article that has some resources um, on this particular subject, and it's a great question. Um, so, you know, when you're storing cornmeal, which I do, I don't store a lot of it, um, but I will soak it usually before I use it, and I'm generally making, you know, corn muffins, or I make sort of a a pancake that has some cornmeal in it. So it's actually more, you know, it has a teeny bit of um, wheat flour, but mostly cornmeal. And, and I haven't made it in a year, honestly, but it's very good when I do make it. Um, those of you that have access to uh, tastyeducation.com and the food storage feast course, there is a uh, recipe for a, a corn pancake in there. And that's uh, that corn is soaked that way. So Sam, I hope this helped and I hope uh, it educated those of you that didn't know about nixtamalization and how masa and tortillas and all those wonderful foods are made. So uh, with that, I appreciate everybody's questions. Call some more in. Jack, thanks for what you do. And everyone, check out the Harvest Eating Podcast if you don't know about it. Take care. Next up, a question for Old Dog Bones on which antibiotics, if you're going to store specifically fish antibiotics in your preps for emergency needs, give you the biggest bang for your buck. With that, hey, Doc, take it away, man. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook's third edition. Also, the new antibiotic guide, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and the designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Mike L., who writes, Question for Dr. Bones. I recently purchased your latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. I truly enjoyed it and have already read it cover to cover. Wow, thank you, Mike. My question is, I have noticed that several of the fish antibiotics seem to cover many of the same medical issues. They're quite expensive, so buying lots of different antibiotics is not feasible for me. If I can only afford a few choices, which three or four antibiotics would cover the widest range of issues and or give me the best bang for my buck? Thanks, Doc.
Well, first, Mike, thanks for the kind words and support. Indeed, there are many ways to skin the proverbial cat, and some antibiotics will do double duty against a number of infections. In Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, the Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, we discuss about 15 or so, as a matter of fact. But as you say, buying lots of different antibiotics is pretty darn expensive. So what are the best antibiotics for survival settings if you have to narrow the list down? I would say that as long as no one is allergic to penicillin, an antibiotic in the beta-lactam family, like amoxicillin or cephalexin, otherwise known as Keflex, would be a good choice for a lot of common infections, especially those affecting the skin and respiratory system. For those allergic to penicillins, an antibiotic like clindamycin would be a good choice. For infections that relate to the intestinal tract, very common issue in survival, consider antibiotics like doxycycline, azithromycin, or metronidazole. Metronidazole, or fishzole, is particularly useful for parasites like Giardia, found in even the clearest mountain streams in the U.S., and the cause of some pretty nasty intestinal infections. Stay away from alcohol, though. The combination of metronidazole and alcohol will make you vomit. A subset of three or four of these drugs that I've just mentioned will take care of a lot of issues, but you have to understand that there are many different infections that could invade your community, and one antibiotic doesn't treat all. That's why we write about many different types and generations of antibiotics and why we're always hoping to find more. In the face of all this, it's important to use antibiotics only when absolutely necessary. Overuse, especially on food-producing livestock, has led to epidemics of resistant bacteria. You should also learn, by the way, how to recognize some of the infectious diseases we talk about in the book that are common now and those that might become common if we are one day knocked off the grid. Mike, thanks for taking the time to read our book. There certainly is a lot to learn. A decent variety and quantity of antibiotics and the knowledge and judgment of when you should use them will give you the best chance that in times of trouble, a bacterial infection will just be a bump in the road and not the end of the road for you and your family. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, make an old man, that's me, very happy and your family medically prepared by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits, books, DVDs, and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a discount off anything in our store. Thanks again. All right, next up we're going to talk about Nosema and beehives. And we're going to do that with Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer. I'm Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company located in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. Hey, today we're talking about Nosema. This question comes from Charles in New Hampshire. It says, Michael, the bee medication Fumagellin used to treat the disease Nosema is no longer being produced. Do you have any alternative treatments or recommendations? I'm thinking about not treating Nosema, and I'm interested in your opinion. How much concern is Nosema for the backyard beekeeper, and is treatment worth the time and expense? I've read that there is more concern for commercial beekeepers than hobbyists. I'm looking forward from hearing your thoughts on this. Charles from New Hampshire. Well, Nosema is a microsporin unicellular parasite that affects apis. Nosema can remain dormant as long-lived spores with resilient to temperature extremes and dehydration. 
it may play the indirect role of colony collapse disorder, or one of the many reasons. This parasite gets in the mid-gut of the bee and puts a hole in it, causing the bee to slowly die. How bad is it for the hobby beekeeper? Well, not as much as backyard and hobby beekeepers do not feed sugar, sugar solutions to their bees all the time to, main, to maintain a food source for them, such as a commercial traveling beekeeper does. This is done to do large traveling of hides and commercial bee farms. For the long time, for for a long time, Osema has been oh, been treated with success with with Fumagellin. Now that they're taking it off the market, and I've looked on the internet, and there are a lot of places where you can still get it if you want to get it and stock up on it. Now the concern of Osema is something to look into, and I certainly don't want to give the in-person that there's anything wrong with uh, from Magellan. However, some folks have concerns that it or any antibiotic may inadvertently migrate and show up in the honey. Others are simply loath to pay the practical price of treatment, although they may pay a price later when their colonies are put to death for not having any remedies or treatments at all. In any case, it would be prudent for us to have, it would be prudent for us to have several treatments at our disposal in order to customize or rotate the treatments and to avoid resistant strains of any single drug since plants produce numbers compounds in their sap and bark to resist fungal infection the botanical kingdom may provide a pharmaceutical of potential natural nosema treatments Lodicin, in 2006, tested several uh, neutral compounds and found out that thymol and resivol, which comes from uh, grapeseed skins, to show promise. Others tested essential oils. A number of beekeepers swear by feeding honey bee healthy, a solution infused with lemongrass and spearmint oils and so many different things is a syrup and sold by many bee companies. A study was done to evaluate the effects of fumagellin, thiamol, honeybee health on the honeybees inf infected with nosema. Um, you know, productive treatments of nosema disease were evaluated by examining both mortality and the spore production with caged honeybees. Bees used in the study were shaken from the frames of uncapped brood and then taken to hives visually free of nosema infection. These bees were then chilled with ice water, placing cages and immediately affected through gravity feeders at the rate of 4,000 spores per bee. Treatment began three days after the inoculation. Dead bees were removed and counted every day 23 days after inoculation, 10 to 15 bees were removed, abdomens were crushed, and spore counts were done. Although the treatment greatly affected mortality of the bees, plus or minus. The studies done were done by the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education and the United States Department of Agriculture. 
The bees that were treated with thymol and honeybee health were found to have rates of mortality similar to unaffected bees, which is a plus. Fumigella improved mortality, but did not anything do anything to the infected and unaffected bees. Everything else showed a no-go. Honeybee health had no effect on spore production. Therefore, the, re the reduction of mortality displayed under treatment must be attributed to the positive effects of the bees themselves. So, fumigellin was the only compound to significantly and consistently reduce spore production in the gut of the bee. The failure of fumigellin to reduce mortality is unexplained. Now, thyromol, which had some effect on spore production, but was unclear about how significant it was, I think is a good alternative. I will say that thymol, T-H-Y-M-O-L, is a phenomenon that's obtained, or a pheromone, or phenol, obtained from thyme oil, T-H-Y-M-E. A more natural method of treatment, that using a good BT from Gunther Hawk, a spikenard farm, has its many uses and ingredients that seem like the honeybee health formula to boost the bees and help them fight off nosema and dysentery. So there are some many different ways to combat nosema. You know, I would get a, you know, stock up on um, some of your flagellin and get some of that going. Uh, try to get some thymol, right, from uh, the use of uh, thyme oil. Uh, look up Gunther Hawk, H-A-L-K-S, of Spikenard Farms, and see about some of their BT. Uh, you can look up the Fat Bee Man, and he talks about making BTs. Um, here's the, the short of it. Feed your bees a good feed. Honey that is not processed is the best feed that will help. And, you know, not to short your bees any food from getting nosema. When feeding your bees, look for teas and other uses. And I think rotate them. Use a little bit of everything. That way they do not get used to one thing, and either does the parasites. I think some of these things will help you out on looking for it. I don't think it's a big problem with uh, hobby beekeepers. I think it's when you're overextending and feeding your bees a lot of uh, just plain corn sugar. That the bees, it's very hard on their gut, and then once they get the infection, uh, penetrates them, and it, it slowly displays and destroys your hive. So I think those are some great things to think about. This was a great question to come about. Um, you know, anything that has to do with infectious diseases inside the beehive is very, very hard to diagnose. It takes a lot. As a human being, when we have a problem, we're able to go to the doctor and tell them what the problem is, and they're able to go through some measures to see what they can eliminate and what causes it. When it comes with insects and animals, even veterinarians have a hard time distinguishing some things and takes a little while for treatment. And then sometimes by trying to find those treatments, we do live our, lose our beehives. So I would just say keep up with your bees. Keep checking them 9 to 11 days. There are different forms of nosema, and some of them cannot be cured. So I want you to kind of think about that, that feeding your good bees, checking them every 9 to 11 days, Seeing a consistency or non-consistency is going to help you with your daily regimen as well as your monthly timetables to see about brood breaks, when to inoculate, when not to. Doing these things when you see 
what time the flow of nectar is and when it's not and when you need to feed and when you don't. These things are going to help you control your bees more. Nosema D's is very, very deadly. But with constant interaction, watching your bees and feeding them good feeds, you shouldn't have a problem. I'm Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, telling you to get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Get it from a small cottage company for a better product and help somebody start out. And remember, help your fellow man. Because one day we're all going to need help. Next, I know many of you guys out there are building businesses, getting your side hustle on, uh, taking those steps to increase your financial sustainability and, and financial resiliency uh, by diversifying your income stream. Some of you guys just want a side hustle to be a, an extra source of income. Some of you want to build it into a business. Some of you want to go headlong. And a lot of you guys now have successful businesses. And a key critical part to any business today, I don't even care if it's mostly an offline business, is follow-up marketing through email. It is the most effective and scalable marketing solution available. We have a question here for Nicole Sauce on how to build an email list. Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with a question from Jan. At least I think that's how I say your name. I'm not sure. The question is, what platform slash tools do you recommend for building a register of email addresses? Details. My wife has a business in the horse riding industry. She visits her clients in person primarily to try out and sell saddles and related equipment. She also serves as a consultant for clients and suppliers since over the years she's developed a unique expertise in the field. By now, she has a lot of very loyal, satisfied customers and valuable contacts and is respected among her suppliers. We've manually collected data about our clients, mainly to send them invoices. How do you suggest we make the best use of this information? We would like to effectively send our clients news, offers, etc., maybe develop a new sales channel. Since we belong to the generator Generation BI before the Internet, we feel totally lost when it comes to this kind of selling. It would be nice to expand the business beyond physical presence of my wife. So where do we start? Any and all suggestions are appreciated. Thanks, Jack, and all experts. I'm so glad to be part of an awesome community, even if I'm a little far off over here in cold Sweden. Okay, Jan, it depends on the size a bit, how much time you have to spend, and if you plan to automate your emails feeding into a sales funnel. That's that's the first thing to think about. Now, you've already given me some of that information in, in your question, but I'm thinking if other people are thinking this too, you want to think about, that. What are you using this for? Email is a great way to develop client relationships and to tell them your story. I'd start by deciding what your goals are. Is it relationship development, sales conversions, new lead debtor generation, data collection? And then once that's done, you go from there. I tend to drill deeper on these kind of goals for email campaigns than I do for some of my other marketing goals because I want, because I usually have a specific like read rate, conversion rate, click through that sort of thing. Also, because with email, it's really easy to track that stuff. That's one of the cool things about email. The biggest mistakes I see in emails is not delivering as promised, whether that's a monthly newsletter and you're not consistent or the content is crappy because crappy content's not very good. It's not going to get you anywhere. Or the biggest offender I see is the schmarmy, salesy emails from hell. We've all gotten them. We all delete them. They're hard to look at. Don't go there. So there are a couple of options out there of of things you can choose. It sounds like your current current plan is really relationship development, which is a good way to start. I think that's the best way to start with email. 
but, you know, a couple systems I wanted to mention specifically. One is MailChimp. MailChimp is super easy to use and learn. And it does a lot for you up to a certain list size. They launched some automation, I think it was last year, but I find that piece of their platform pretty clunky to use. And I'm currently a little more interested in the automation side than the just getting started with a listserv size. And so MailChimp is a great place to start, though, and it's free. It's free until you surpass, I think it's at 500 email addresses, but it might be a certain number of emails per month. I can't remember. Um, so it's a free option. And learning something for free is a good way to start. Another system I've used and liked is Drip. Drip is $49 a month to start, and they do a lot of automated campaigns, and they try to walk you through conversions. So this one, you can do it for relationship development, but also it's a pretty powerful tool if you're looking to convert. And then finally, another system I've liked is Emma. They're out of Nashville. That's probably why I've played with them. But Emma, and it's myemma.com for that one. They're really good at email newsletters and they're really good at conversions and they make it really easy for me to say, oh, hey, I just launched my recipe book. It's here on the website. If you enter your email, then you get a free digital copy and then it just walks you, you enter your email, you confirm your email. So you have that double confirmation that you're not going to, you know, report me to the spam police or anything. And then they send you a link. You can do the download. However, they start at $89 a month, so they ain't cheap. That's all I'm saying. So with your current plan being relationship development with your current clients, I would consider the following simple approach just to get started. And as you figure out how you're going to use this tool, because you're also learning to ride the horse, right? So figure out what you can share with your client base, tips, stories, highlights of other clients, experiences, those sorts of things. Write down 10 ideas. So basically you're going, these are the concepts for my first 10 emails. And a really easy way to do that is like 10 tips for, you know, taking care of your saddle, for example. That, that could be 10 different emails right there. So get that kind of together with your wife and then sign up for and learn MailChimp. Do the tutorials. Trial your very first email to a quote unquote list of three friends or family members until it looks right. This is really important. Because you don't want to send out a blast email to all your clients for the first time and it looks terrible or it has an awful typo. You know, it's happened to people, but when you pull the trigger on that, um, that first email, there's a, there's a little icon of a monkey's finger going down and it's sweating. And I'm always sweating a little bit too because I'm like, what did I put in this email that I haven't seen no matter how many times we looked at it? Anyway, make it clear in that first email that the purpose of this outreach project is whatever it is to share tips with your clients or to give them a newsletter with updates, whatever your purpose is and how easy it is to unsubscribe. Because if you import all those emails you have and they haven't organically signed up, you're more likely to get tagged as a spammer. If you get tagged as a spammer because people are like, hey, I didn't sign up for this, what what gives? Then MailChimp will shut you down and you lose everything. You lose your lists. It takes, you have to go argue with them to get back up and run uh, running. They also get grumpy if too many emails on your list bounce because they don't want their system because they're sharing a server with everybody else's lists who are also using MailChimp they don't want to be tagged as a spammer and have all of the other email campaigns from all their other clients also bounce. So a trick I use is I will use another free system or a trial on another system like Constant Contact or something else to send an email first and see what bounces. And it may just be an email 
that doesn't say much. It may not obviously be for me. I just want to clean up that list. That's probably cheating, but I have been known to do that. And Jan, over time, this method of communication will become natural for you, especially if you already correspond with them via email one-on-one. You may find yourself looking to fold this then into more of a sales conversion, as you mentioned, and that's pretty easy to do. Finally, the other question I have is, do you have a website presence or social presence? Because if you do, make it so people can sign up easily for your list directly to MailChimp there so that you don't run into that spam email import sort of cleanup issue. Having an email list is such a great way to keep direct relationships with your clients, and nobody can take that for you from you, unlike Facebook with all their page hijinks, right? Speaking of email questions, I have one from Matt. He says, hey, Nicole. How do you conduct a giveaway to grow an email list? I'm working on growing my email list and want to explore some options. I'm familiar with digital product giveaways. Not sure how I should do it for a physical project. In my situation, I sharpen knives and I'm thinking of giving them away for if I get 10 subscribers from somebody, I'll give them a knife. Have you ever done something like that? Any ideas on how best to do it? What platform is best suited? Cheers, Matt. Matt, really quickly. I would not overthink this one. Treat it like a digital giveaway. Someone signs up, they get entered into a drawing for a knife. Someone refers somebody to sign up, they get entered into a drawing for a knife. You do the drawing, you do it on YouTube or wherever else, you share it all over the place, bam, done. That said, growing your list with a pop-up on your site can be really, really, really effective, especially if you're putting regular content there. So, So if you've not already set that up, set that up. Right. Make it so they can sign up. If you're a YouTube channel, make it so they you're driving them to that sign up. Because, again, having those email addresses is gold. As for platform, where are you getting the best traction? Use those. All of them. If the answer is all of them, use all of them. And I'm with Jack on the Instagram thing. Lots of interaction is going on there. I've, I've like also ignored it for a long time because I don't have a lot of things to take pictures of. And then it turns out I really do. So a visually oriented business like a knife business could do really well there. Okay, guys, I am ready for a cocktail. Thanks for your questions. Keep them coming. You can always find me over at livingfreeintennessee.com. Make it a great week. I just want to throw something in here. I think there's a lot of people that kind of feel like email marketing doesn't work for companies that, that just sell product. Like, you know, I use email because every day uh, a significant portion of my audience gets an email that says, hey, here's all the new stuff on the blog. And that keeps them listening to the show, reminds them that we're there, et cetera. But, you know, I think people think that, you know, when somebody gets an email and says, hey, we have a special on or whatever, um, people just delete those. The deletion rate is high. But the effort to do the marketing is low. And if you build a significant email marketing list, even a response rate of a quarter point certainly makes it worth the effort to send that email out because you have something on sale or whatever. Because it happens all the time to me. Uh, Especially when I have shopped a website, thought about buying something, talked myself out of it for the time being, and I get an email from that company and they've got stuff marked down or they're doing free shipping or they got something new in that's really interesting to me. And I would say that 95% of the time that it's on sale, it's here, this is new, email, when I get it, I delete it. 
I don't even open it. It probably reads as an open on their uh, software because, you know, it's in preview and outlook or whatever, but it's not. It's a delete, 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 delete. I, I have uh, probably the fastest uh, delete speed of, of anybody in the world uh, out there. I am, I'm very good at it. It's something I've spent years perfecting my ability to delete quickly. But yet I still do get enticed to buy and spend money I would not otherwise have spent, at least at that moment. So email marketing is incredibly effective, and the key is to build solid relationships with your customers because I do have companies that I really trust, that I really like, that even when I delete their email, I, I still kind of take it in that, oh, you know, Corey over at Aquarium Co-op sent me an email about some, some new fish thing or something, and I don't need anything right now. Or I've, you know, I've, I've spent my fish budget for the month, but uh, I, I have an affinity for that company. So build those solid relationships and then use Email is a communication mechanism, and I think you'll find it is very, very effective. Next up, I have a question for our pups, man, our dogs. Uh, dealing with and preventing ear infections for Dr. Kelly. Kelly, take it away. Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly, here to answer your furry pet questions. Today's question is from Ty and says, My question is, what is the best way to heal and prevent ear infections in dogs? Details. I have a male Great Pyrenees who occasionally suffers from ear infections. My vet gave him Batril and Cephalexin for his first infection about a month ago, as well as PhytoVet Keep Flush. Cleaning his ear out with a flush twice a day, as well as half a Batril twice a day. Then once a week's worth of Batril was finished, he went to two 750 milligrams of Cephalexin twice a day. This cleared his ear up very effectively, but now the other ear is flared up. I have some leftover wash and cephalexin that I began to give him, but I noticed that all of these meds are available online. I am now thinking about buying these meds to have them on standby, but would also like to find a way to prevent these infections. Thanks for your help, Ty. Okay, some of this answer is similar to another one I answered about a dog that loved water and was secondarily getting some ear infections. So that episode has background info on what causes ear infections and some tips on how to avoid them. However, the big question here is, should you keep medications on hand for these ear infections? I do think having supplies on hand and preventative maintenance is a really good idea. Um, using the ear flush you have at least weekly for maintenance is great because it has the ketoconazole added into it to help keep yeast under control. And some dogs even have a hypersensitivity to the yeast. So in addition to the yeast being bothersome, they react even worse and are really uncomfortable from that secondary inflammation. And hopefully once you've cleared the infection, then only weekly cleaning is needed. Um, occasionally they may need it more frequently, but you really have to be cautious too about doing it so much that you're irritating the ear canal further and setting them back up for infections. Um, I would hesitate to be using oral antibiotics for a run-of-the-mill ear infection. Um, certainly if your vet had seen it and knew, you know, was able to diagnose exactly what was going on there. Um, it may have been necessary. Um, oral antibiotics often have trouble getting to a high enough concentration in the ear canal, though, and they often don't come into play unless the middle ear is involved, and sometimes not even then, depending on who you talk to. Um, you could also run the risk, of, if you're doing this frequently with oral antibiotics, of creating resistance, which could happen not only in the ear, but bacteria on the skin or anywhere on the dog. Um, and the last thing you want is a dog that's prone to antibiotic-resistant infections. I mean, it's just nasty stuff. Um, and after having some patients that had 
methicillin-resistant infections, both staph aureus and other kinds. I mean, it's the kind of stuff nightmares are made of. You just don't want to have to deal with it. Um, the other problem is that many of the topical antibiotics and some of the other ear meds, you know, they have the potential to cause deafness. Um, sometimes that resolves when the medications are stopped and sometimes it's permanent, um, especially if they get into a ruptured eardrum. And these are medications that we use all the time. Um, we prescribe them daily uh, because they're needed and they really are the best choice for what they have going on. Um, but you have to be a little cautious about the frequency of use. And that's why it's important to look for some of the underlying causes of ear issues to try and minimize the number of infections that these dogs have. Now, what tends to work best as a long-term maintenance for most of these ear guys is keeping the ear canal clean and the judicious use of steroids to help keep the canals open. Now, ideally, it would be a topical steroid versus oral, so there would be less side effects. Uh, Steroids are awesome. I love them. However, they do not come without their own risks. And so that's something that um, your veterinarian can help with your individual pet in determining, do they have any risk factors that would make them not eligible to use that or in to just make sure that it's going to be okay for them. But lots of times it can be the real key to keeping these guys free of problems. Um, even some of the over-the-counter ear meds like Zymox have a steroid hydrocortisone in them that can help. Um, I know Jax used the topical Zymox with hydrocortisone in it and liked it for things like hotspots and stuff. Um, so something like that may be an option as well. Now, steroids may not prevent all infections, but they does often help reduce the number of them. Um, the big question is why is the dog having this inflammation and are there underlying allergies that are exacerbating it? And that other episode, like I mentioned, talks about some of the allergies and things and ways to keep it under control. Um, Food allergies, while uncommon, can be a real problem for some of these ear dogs. And in some ways, I feel like they are really the lucky ones, though, because a simple food change can correct it. Um, Unlike the dogs who are allergic to pollen and everything else under the sun, um, they often have to have lifelong medications of some type to help keep them comfortable, since they just can't live in a doggy bubble their whole life. And since you have a great Pyrenees, that would be one sizable bubble that he would need to help prevent that. So hopefully you can find a regimen for him with the ears, topical ear meds um, that can help keep the ear infections at bay. Thanks, Jack. And I hope everybody has a great weekend. Bye. So um, just a couple real quick additions there. She mentioned Zymox. I am absolutely in awe of how well Zymox works. And I'm aware of the hydrocortisone in it, but there are enzymes in it as well because I've used other hydrocortisone uh, products on my dogs and on myself, and I'm, people have gasped sometimes when I said, you know, I've used Zymox for dogs on myself, and frankly, if I wouldn't, you know, there's certain things that dogs, it's good for dogs and bad for people, or good for people and bad for dogs, well, that direction, chocolate, I would eat chocolate, but I wouldn't give it to my dog, but, you know, unless it's something like that, if I wouldn't put it on my skin, I wouldn't put it on my dog's skin, period, so, but I've used this stuff in a variety of ways, and it is phenomenal how well that it works. I've never really thought of using it for ears, but if you have, like, especially where they've dug at it or something, I could see it being highly effective. Uh, Charlie, my pit uh, pointer mix, uh, gets this red rash, kind of like almost like a diaper rash, like right in the inseam of his, his legs. Uh, and, you know, two days of spraying that on him twice a day, uh, he, he it just goes away. And, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't come back for a while. It actually knocks it out. I believe it's probably some sort of a yeast infection because he's got not much hair down there. He kind of sweats. Well, I guess he can't sweat. 
Dogs don't sweat. I don't know what causes it, but uh, usually it's a, a, a summertime thing. But he did just break out with it, and uh, I can see him laying. He's laying where I can inspect him from here, and he is all nice and clean, and he's just his normal pink instead of the bright red because pips, they got a lot of pink on them. Uh, but the other product I wanted to mention for this issue is, is some I ran as an item of the day just about two, three weeks ago called Aroma Care Ear Wipes. Uh, it's made with eucalyptus and some other things, and my dogs get their ears cleaned uh, a couple times a month on a schedule. And a, a, a tub of these things for like a hundred of them is like eight bucks. And so a tub of a hundred lasts a long time. Now, a big dog like a Pyrenees, you might have to do a double cleaning. So you might use two or three wipes per thing. But, you know, I pretty much get almost a year out of, out of mine, um, for three dogs. So that it's a, it's a good investment. The product works. It will not fix an ear infection. What I think it does is by keeping their ears clean, It makes getting one in the first place less likely if it's be, if it's because of irritation and then the dog scratching the ear and then eventually the infection coming that way. If it is something like a nutritional issue, of course, that needs to be addressed. But good ear hygiene for your dogs. And I have a set schedule. But, you know, if I'm petting one of my dogs and I, and I get a whiff of stinky ear, that dog is getting that ear cleaned that moment. Uh, a lot of dogs don't like this. I really recommend that you start working with your, if you get a new puppy, one of the many things that they need to learn as far as it's okay for you to touch them there is their ears. Their paws and their ears are the two most important places that dogs tend to get nippy or really scared about. They'll pee because they're so frightened or they'll bite at you or they'll growl at you or they'll snap at you or they just run away. Uh, feet and ears. So when you get a pup, I can't stress how important it is. Every day, touch his paws. Just touch his paws. Look at him, inspect him, pet him, etc., and start cleaning ears before they need to be cleaned. And if if you have a, especially a good, most dogs are food responsive. Some dogs are not that food responsive. That's it's a weird thing, but there are dogs that just don't really have a high response rate to being fed. They generally have a high response rate to affection. Then I like to use both if the dog's responsive to both. So when you take his feet and you check his feet out and you check his ears out and you clean his ears, give him affection and give him a treat to where the dog starts to associate. When, when the human sticks this cold, wet thing in my ear, I get a doggy treat. So all of a sudden, you know, even if I don't really like it, I do get a treat out of it. And I think your life and the maintenance of your pets, if you take that approach, especially as a pup, You know, I was able to do it with Max because he's just such a damn good dog. He listens once he knows what you want. He's, he's a big baby about it, but he does it. With Charlie, I got him as a puppy. So, Charlie, I can, I can do anything I need to do. Uh, Lucy, we took her in at like 18 months as a stray off the street, and we still struggle with it. But I still work with her when I'm petting her. I'll just sit there and hold her paw like I'm holding a person's hand. And she'll get all chewy on my hand and all. I'll just pet her and just, you got to work on that. And the sooner you break them of it, the easier all of this stuff's going to be. With that, let's move on to a quick one for Gary Collins on if you're an RV guy, you're living in your RV in the wintertime, and all those pipes and stuff underneath there, and you got connections, you know, city water or whatever. How do you keep your pipes from freezing up? Gary, let us know, man. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the thesimplelifenow.com and author of my Going Off the Grid series and my The Simple Life series, where I talk about all things living off the grid and life simplification, all kinds of good stuff to make your life easier. But today I want to talk about one of the topics I have in one of my books, which is the Guide to RV Living. 
and people ask me about quite often is when you live in a colder area and dealing with the winter with your, your water line freezing in your RV. It's pretty common. Just happened to me recently. <laughs> I'll explain. Um, the easiest way, and I've talked about this, uh, like I said in the past, but it's called heat tape. It's been around forever. It basically, it plugs in. It has a normal plug in. You plug it into a 120. Uh, it's just tape that goes a line that goes around your pipe, your water line, and it just it keeps it warm, warm enough so it won't freeze. It doesn't get hot. It actually is. I, I can't remember. I think it gets like to 45, 50 degrees. That's it. Just enough to so your water won't freeze. Now there's a problem. Sometimes you're if you're in a colder place, your your bib, your your faucet, your you know for your hose will freeze. So you have to wrap that as well. Just to give you a heads up, if you're in a cold area, that your water will not freeze in the hose, but it'll freeze in your in your hose bib. So I had that happen recently. It got cold enough where I'm at right now, where it didn't last year, but it actually froze in the bib. My hose was fine, but the bib wasn't, so I'd wake up in the morning with no water. Another way to deal with pipes freezing is to, uh, if you're like me, I use my electric heater in my RV a lot because I have electricity here. And it's cheaper. You know, I, it's part of my space fee where I'm at right now. And plus using propane, if you use it for heat in a cold area, you'll burn through a ton of propane. So if you have access to electricity, use your space heater. But first thing when you wake up in the morning is turn that uh, pro, your internal propane heater on that works inside your RV. And that will defrost, usually defrost all the water lines if they got frozen underneath. Just a little tip there. And uh, make sure if you have any more RV questions, send them on in. And again, remember, go to www.thesimplelifenow.com and sign up for my newsletter if you want to stay in touch. Talk to you guys later. And next up, we have a segment from John Pugliano on lessons from the recent stock market correction. Well, hello, TSP listeners. Today, rather than answer just one financial question, I want to do a market review with you and to provide you with some of my thoughts about what's going on with this crazy, switchback, very volatile market that we've seen. Just last month, December of 2018 was one of the worst Decembers on record for the stock market. In fact, you've got to go all the way back to the Great Depression to find more of a point drop in the S&P 500. And yet, as we start this new year and we're about to wrap up the month of January, January so far is shaping up as being one of the best stock markets we've ever had. So how can this dichotomy be taking place? Well, number one, volatility in the stock market is not unusual. In fact, what is unusual was the relative calm we had in 2017. That year was one of the most stable the stock market had ever had. And that's very unusual. Now, that party started to come to an end in 2018 for a lot of reasons, political instability being one of them, but primarily the real fear and trepidation in the stock market, and not only in the U.S. market, but across all international markets, the big fear has been that the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates and start reining in some of this liquidity from the monetary system. What I find interesting in all this is that despite the fact that the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates and has been tightening, we still saw the S&P 500 make all-time new record highs just three months ago back in September of 2018. All this enthusiasm has been taking place because of the record amount of profits that are occurring on Wall Street. 
The final numbers aren't in yet, but we're going to probably finish up 2018 with something as high as maybe a 23 or 24% increase in corporate profits. Make no mistake, that's what's driving the stock market. It is based on fundamentals. Now, everybody knows that this much juicing of the economy can't last, and this huge increase in corporate profits has all been attributed to the corporate tax cuts. And we know that there's a diminishing effect and that profits won't be as high in 2019 or in 2020. The real question, the real uncertainty, is where will growth eventually stabilize at? Will it be 5%, 6%, 9%? No one really knows. It looks like the number for this year will come in somewhere around 6.5%. For an economy where the GDP is only likely to grow 2.5%, that's still a really fantastic number and good news for Wall Street. So if that's the case, why do we see all this volatility in the stock market? Well, let's go back to September 2018. S&P hit an all-time record high, and within a couple weeks, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, came out, and he made a statement in regards to the Federal Reserve continuing their policy of monetary tightening and raising interest rates, and what he said was that rates were still far away from neutral a neutral rate being the amount that neither stimulated the economy nor penalized the economy. Wall Street took that as a very negative sign, fearing that interest rates were going to go up several more percentage points. As a result of that, over the next six weeks, the markets moved down close to 10%. Then when we got into December and the Federal Reserve had their last interest rate meeting of the year, they went ahead and they raised interest rates for a fourth time, now, that in and of itself really didn't spook the stock market because investors were expecting that. But what did scare the market was the strong language that the Federal Reserve used. And I think that they used that language to show that they were tough against President Trump. Trump has been berating the Federal Reserve for the better part of the last year, saying that they were crazy, that they were out of touch, they were out of control, and they were going to ruin the economy. Well, I think the Federal Reserve didn't look like they were backing down to Trump, so they used some strong language saying that they would be on schedule to continue raising interest rates aggressively into 2019. And from that first week of December when they made that announcement until Christmas Eve, the market went on to drop another 10%. And yet here we are a month later and the S&P 500 is up 13%. The lesson in all this is that if you want to be an investor in the stock market, you, number one, have to accept the reality that there's going to be volatility and the market's going to go up and down. And you also have to discipline your emotions so that during periods of panic, you don't let yourself be overcome by the emotion of fear. You have to rationally look at the market and decide whether the fundamentals justify you holding your position or perhaps even buying on the lows and on the dips. And if you can have that kind of self-discipline, you avoid making one of the major mistakes that most people make, and that's selling at exactly the wrong time when the market's down. In most cases, not in all cases, but in most cases, when the market is in correction and when the market is down, that's exactly the time that you want to be buying, not selling. But unfortunately, most people don't have the stomach for that and end up selling at the worst possible time. Well, hey, those are my thoughts. Will this rally continue? I don't know. It's my thought, though, that because the S&P 500 is still below its fair market value, the pullbacks will be more of a buying opportunity than a time to panic. But, hey, that's just my opinion. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth.
All right, this next one comes in from Chris, and Chris says, Recommendations for a long-distance three hundred eight rifle. So first, is there actually any difference between a tactical rifle and a good hunting rifle? The answer to that is yes, but probably not as big as people think. Uh, next, he says, I would like to stick to three hundred eight caliber. My goal is to be able to reach out and touch something every now and then, whether it's a metal target or some mid-sized game. I've been looking at either a Remington 700 or possibly a Weatherby Vanguard Series 2 bolt action. I'm expecting to spend somewhere about $2,000 on the rifle and scope, but some direction would be nice. Thanks for all you do. You really helped change my life and my family's future for the better, Chris. Chris, I'm going to just give you full disclosure that what I'm going to say is heavily biased by my own personal perceptions. I do want to acknowledge there is definitely a difference, especially in some rifles that are marketed as tactical rifles. A lot of times it has to do with the barrel. A lot of times those rifles actually weigh significantly more than a hunting rifle. Uh, there are certain stocks that are kind of tailored more toward the tactical market that are even, uh, let's say, more rigid and reliable and less likely to have fluctuations as some synthetic stocks that are marketed more as hunting stocks. There is a whole litany we could go into to certain tactical rifles with amazing things that have been done to them, special trigger jobs and all kinds of other stuff. And in the end, this is what I, I really believe. For 900, for about 99% of the time, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in the real world of what people are really going to do with the rifle that they're going to own. Now, there is an entire cult following of true long-distance shooting that pushes caliber and shooter to its limit. And it is a fascinating world. And as you get further and further out to the limit, the more and more little bitty incremental things matter. Where it, it makes sense to go from a $1,000 scope to a $3,000 scope where it makes sense to go from a $500 rifle to, instead of a $1,000 or $1,500 rifle, a $5,000 rifle. Unless you're really good, and unless you're going to dedicate the time to becoming better, there are very few people who will exceed the capability of a good scope on a decent hunting rifle like a Weatherby or a Ruger or a Remington or a Winchester. Very few people where if, if you're missing that shot, it's the equipment. If you had better equipment, you'd be able to make that. There's very few people. The next thing is, I am not a fan of super giant scopes that can let you see a gnat's ass a mile and a half away. Unless you're in that world where you're really going to, like if this is just like an idea, well, I'd like to be able to do that. And I'm going to go out and shoot some places where I can get out 300, 400 yards. Well, and then, you know, like you said, like I'm saying, that, that type quality that you're looking at, I think is all you need. If you're going to work on becoming a thousand yard marksman and you're going to dedicate, and I know some people that do it. I know one through a friend and I know one directly that they, have put thousands and thousands of dollars, but more importantly, they've put hundreds of hours and dedication into becoming able to make those shots. And even those guys, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, except for the most extreme ranges, if you put a setup like I'm going to describe here in their hands, they're damn lethal out to 500 meters, at least, minimum. Next on a 308. The 308 is... One of the most phenomenal rifle cartridges out there is basically a shortened version of the 30 six, which is probably my favorite all-around cartridge that there is. 
there are some limitations. And there are places like, you know, a 338 Lapua Magnum and stuff really kind of takes over just on time of flight, especially on game, let alone knock down power when it gets their penetrating ability, etc. And to me, and I know somebody's going to write me, and you don't know, some guy shot a deer at 1,285 yards with a 308, he was doing it offhand, and he was doing it backwards through a mirror, or whatever. In general, I consider the 308 pushing its limits on game at about 500 meters, maybe exceeding its limits in some instances, okay, even with you know an overall good shot. One of the reasons is the flight time of the round itself as it sheds velocity, uh, and a, a second longer flight time is forever in a day in that world. So I, I don't think it makes a lot of sense if we're going to be talking about becoming an 800 or 1,000-yard or 1,200-yard marksman to be doing that with a 308. Again, I know it can be done. I understand that it can be done. I get that it can be done. I respect you if you're doing it. But the way this question is asked a lot more casually, I don't expect that to be the case here. So it's very hard for me to say, go out and tacticalize yourself for something like this. If it was me, and I was looking for a scope to kind of start out with, and I wanted to go high-end, and I wanted to give myself greater long-range capability, and I wanted to give myself more magnification than I typically give myself um, on my rifles. I am a big uh, believer in, in scopes that run somewhere from the low end of 1.5 power to the upper end of 9 power. I love me some 2x7. I really do. If I want to go above and I want more magnification, then I'm going to look at the uh, the Lupult VXR Patrol in a 4 to 12 by 40 configuration. It's a bit bigger in frame and size of a scope than I generally put on one of my rifles, but it's not that out of line. It's not much bigger than a typical 3x9, which is kind of the most common thing out there. It doesn't weigh a lot. It doesn't have a giant-ass objective that's so big you need special rings to keep it from hitting the barrel of the gun and have all kinds of uh, funky things. It does have adjustable turrets where you can, as you're practicing and learning and needing to come up a couple clicks or back a couple clicks, that you can adjust those turrets. So, I mean, it, it's that's great on that. I love the reticle. It's a fire dot G reticle. Um, they're, they're basically, instead of mill dot, they're little hashes. And I, I like that a lot more for working with distance shooting and, and reticle adjustment. As far as, you know, Kentucky Wind is basically using those reticles to tell you things because they're smaller than a mill dot. And at longer ranges, to me, the mill dot generally covers up too much of the target. I kind of see it as, as, as fairly outdated technology, honestly, at this point. There's better ways to do this. Uh, and that, I'm not going to give you a list of, of scopes. That's where I would look, and that keeps you well in your budget going there. And you are not going to find fault with that scope unless you you know you want to go to a 16, you know, you want to go to like a six by 16 or something like that, or you know, I don't know, you want a 24, you know, uh, magnification or whatever, and you get in these larger scopes, and you can do that if you want to. But here's part, there's a couple reasons I, I feel this way about this subject. Number one, when I was in the Army all the way back in, it was a long time ago, <laughs> we consistently shot 300-meter targets with M16 rifles uh, that uh, shooting at targets that were about the size of a man from his belly button to the top of his head with iron sights at 300 meters. And pretty much I could hit that target every time as long as I could see it. If it had enough of a silhouette where I could tell where it was with those those old sights, I could hit it. And I understand as you get older and your eyes change, and God knows mine have, and I'm blind in one of them anyway to begin with. 
and always have been. But it, it, the optical scopes certainly help with identifying targets, being able to know you're on the right part of the target, being able to see in low light. I shot a deer a few years ago uh, with a Ruger in .357 with a scope on it that if I didn't have that scope, I just couldn't take the shot because it is starting to get dark and I didn't have the light to be able to. So I, I get scopes are useful and I have them on most of my rifles and I'm not anti-scope. I'm just saying if you can hit the the torso of a man at 300 meters with with combat sights on an M16 that's so damn old that somebody probably carried it in Vietnam, then we probably don't need as much as we think we need to be able to hit a deer at 350 yards. We, we probably don't. And a 12-power scope will get that done all day without being honking huge. And I've been on some hunts. I hunt a lot of you know, ranches and stuff like that in Texas where you pay to hunt. So inevitably you end up there with people you do not know. You know, Maybe they can handle 16 hunters on, on a week. And so you might be there with a few guys you know and a bunch of people you don't know. So you see a lot of equipment. And I see a lot of people, you know, with these these black tactical rifles, and they've got these scopes with this freaking sunshade almost as long as the damn barrel, and objectives that are uh, adjustable, and it just, uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, they have more money in a bipod than I got in my gun. Flip up covers, and it, yeah, flip up covers I like. There's a good place for them. They keep, you know, but it's almost like they just want to be like in a movie where they're flipping stuff down and flipping stuff up and putting stuff together. And um, I shot a deer last year at 50 yards on a full run, on a bounding run, with a 308 scoped rifle sitting in a metal office chair. And I was pretty proud of that shot. Some people didn't understand why. I'm like, well, you need to try doing it. You need to try that shit, shooting a deer on a full bound and a bounding run, up and down. And that rifle is a cheap savage. I, I don't even remember exactly how I got it at this point. I think it was about 250 bucks in value when I got it. It's got a Simmons 4x4 scope on it that ain't worth but about 100 bucks brand new. And a set of rings that are probably $20 rings. And if that rifle had been set... You know, as a three by nine scope, if I had that scope on nine power, I, I, there's probably no way I could have made that shot. I wouldn't have had enough field of view in the scope to make that shot. And if I was like some of these guys I see going out to these deer blinds, and they've got a freaking feeder 75 to 100 yards away from a deer blind, and they got a 24 power scope and and, and this tactical blacked out rifle, um, there's no way with a bipod on it. There's no way I could have made that shot with that rifle because that that rifle's designed for those specifically that long-range stuff. So what you didn't really tell me, you said it would be nice to be able to, is what you really have planned for this gun. So for most people, I'm going to tell you that even if the apocalypse comes, and even if we have to employ counter-sniper technology, most of your shots going to be well under 300 yards. Uh, some of the most deadly snipers in, in World War II uh, were, were using, you know, iron sights and fighting basically guerrilla wars. Not the ones you hear about. Some of them you do, but a lot of them you don't even hear about. Um, we have this kind of glorification, I guess, or romanticization of what snipers are really all about. And every sniper has to go to sniper school or whatever. Sniper's a guy with a gun that shoots your ass when you don't see him. And if you can't pull that off with, with a, 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 a stock 700, and a decent hunting scope on it, you're not pulling it off with, with a $2,000 or a $20,000 rig. You're really not. 
So to me, I don't like my things, whatever they are, to only do one thing. Now, if I got into the hobby, like I'm a fish hobbyist, right? So I'll do some stuff there that maybe other people think is kind of crazy as far as spending. And if I got into the hobby of long-distance shooting to where I was spending, you know, two or three weekends a month with a guy working as my spotter becoming the best long-distance shooter I can become because that was something I wanted to do, then I'll buy a specialized tool for that. If I'm just a guy that likes to be able to shoot long distance on occasion, and I really want to hunt and I want to target shoot and stuff like that, then I want a more all-around rifle. And I think either of the rifles you mentioned, coupled with this loophole VXR, I think would be a fantastic setup. And I don't think you would ever find fault with it, unless you want to go to that extreme, and it still wouldn't be a bad place to start. Lastly, I want to give you some advice if you're out there listening to this and you're like, but I want to be that guy. Uh, I did an interview quite a while ago, geez, I guess almost a thousand episodes ago, with a guy named Rex Tibor of Rex Reviews on Long Range Shooting, specifically going into that level of detail. And if you want to know more about it, it would be a great episode to listen to. It was episode 1713, Rex Tibor of Rex Reviews on Long Range Shooting. It is in the show notes for today's episode. And remember, if you want to find something at the Survival Podcast website, the search but uh, box is your friend. Uh, you know, try a couple different searches, and then if it doesn't come up, email me and say, "Hey, I'm looking for this, and I can't find it." Because almost anything that you can conceive of, we've talked about at some point. And the past episodes, now, you know, we got oh, oh, we're heading for three thousand here, guys. We're going to be Mister Three Thousand and all. Um, there, there is a wealth of knowledge that, is, that we've put out over ten years on this show. So make sure if you want to know something, I'm not saying don't ask again. I'm not saying, because this was a great question. I enjoyed it. But I'm saying if you need more than you get in a show like this, and you're like, I wish you do a whole show on that, or I wish you'd talk more about it. If I don't know it, I probably brought on somebody that did to talk about it. And in this case, uh, Rex Tibor was a really good dude and had some great recommendations for scopes for getting into it at that higher level as well. All right, with that, we have wrapped up another episode. Hope you guys did enjoy today's episode and my segment on it as well. Uh, we had great stuff from the expert council this week. With that, I want to remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z. You go to tspaz.com, and uh, you, uh, you, you just shop from there, and as long as you start there, you help us no matter what you end up buying. But you can see all my reviews. You can see the deals of the day on Amazon, which is really kind of worth checking out, because a lot of times stuff pops up, you're like, I've been waiting for that. And I've seen some really great deals pop up here and there. Uh, but I also review an item of the day, or I bring one around that I've reviewed before. Today, that's the case. I've reviewed this before. Uh, but it's the, the Kunrickon Julianne Peeler. Now, um, the reason that I like this thing so much is, number one, it's about the highest quality you can get, and it's still cheap. I don't, be- I don't believe in buying cheap stuff. Just because it's cheap. I want it to be good, and so this is cheap, and it's, it probably costs twice as much as the actual cheap thing in its category. Now, Julianne Peeler is, is kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's like a peeler, but instead of peeling big peels like off a cucumber or something like that, it peels little strings like angel hair pasta strings. And there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with it. Daikon radish and carrot pickle is a great thing to do with it. Um, adds a lot of crunch to your food, a lot of flavor, but... My favorite thing to do with it is make something called zoodles. And that means basically making a zucchini noodle. 
And I give the whole process in the write-up today. If you want to go check it out on, on how to make zoodles, there's even a video that shows how to do it. And this is a great way to add a noodle-like thing to your diet and keep your carbohydrates down. And uh, I, I just it, it's, it's done a lot for us. There's a right way to do it. There's a wrong way to do it. And I would say this. You should go watch this video if you already own a Julianne Peeler and you don't need to buy a new one. If you have something called the Spiralizer, which I really like, but I don't want another bulky thing in my house, you should watch this video. If you go to the grocery store and you buy pre-noodleized zucchini or other squash um, or other things, you should go watch this video. Because it shows you how to use salt to make the texture a lot more like a noodle than a mushy piece of squash. And there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. And I show you the right way to do it. And if you try it, you'll never do it any other way. So check it out. Again, it's the Kun Rickon Julianne Peeler item of the day. You always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Brings us to our song of the day, and we are at the end of uh, railroad or train song week. And I got a song today by Gordon Lightfoot. The song is called the Canadian Railroad Trilogy, and this was a very well-known song in Canada. It was written in the '60s, I think for a documentary series on the railroads in Canada. I think it's 67, if I remember right. I looked it up on Song Facts, and I couldn't find much more about it than that. But when you listen to the words, it becomes really evident what this song is. It talks about the way that North America was before there was a railroad. Well, before there was the white man in North America, when it was just native peoples. It even really, if you listen to it, it kind of harkens back to before even they were here. When it was just emptiness and no people and animals and, and wilderness, and that's all that it was. And it kind of takes a trip through time and how the railroads were built and that expanded a nation, in, in their case Canada, but of course it was the same here in the United States. And it was the railroad that made settling the entire nation possible. Because you're only going to do so much with covered wagons. Uh, a lot of the whole crossing the country on covered wagon was there was infrastructure and resources on the West Coast. You need to get through there because there wasn't nothing. But once the railroads came, then you can start having towns, and you hear a lot of that in this. And it really hit me, and, and I, I can't confirm this because I couldn't find much information on the song itself. Trilogy doesn't really make a lot of sense here unless you look at it this way. You have the time of the railroad, or time before the railroad, the time of the railroad, and the time after the railroad was really necessary, after its heyday. Well, we still have a lot of stuff that happens by rail, but in the end, once the car and the and the highway came, it gave people freedom, and people didn't need trains anymore. And that started to lead to the downfall of the glory days of the train. And most train songs are about that. They're about that second part, the nostalgia for the way it was when the trains were king, how amazing it was, what an adventure it was, and how we've lost that. What the trilogy does for me is it brings us back to the reality that probably a hell of a lot of people that felt that way about the time before the trains were, when it was truly wilderness, when there was true freedom in that wilderness. And that brings us to a, a kind of a, a circle of life type moment where we realize that for everything that we wax nostalgically for and wish was still here or wish was still that way, there was a time before it was that somebody else probably waxed nostalgically for that. With that, we've come to the end of another week. Hope you enjoyed the show. It's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, along with the expert counsel on a Friday, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
There was a time in this fair land when the railroad did not run. When the wild majestic mountains stood alone against the sun. Long before the white man and long before the wheel. When the green dark forest was too silent to be real. But time has no beginnings and the history has no bounds. As to this verdant country, they came from all around. They sailed upon her waterways and they walked the forest tall. Built the mines, the mills, and the factories for the good of us soul. And when the young man's fancy had turned into the spring, the railroad men grew restless for to hear the hammers ring. Their minds were overflowing with the visions of their day. With many a fortune won and lost, and many a debt to pay. For they looked in the future and wanted to see the sun iron road running from the sea to the sea, bringing the goods to a young growing land, all up from the seaboard and into their hands. Look away. Tracks and tear up the trails. Open your heart, let the lifeblood flow. Gotta get on our way, 'cause we're moving too slow. Bring in the workers and bring up the rails. We gotta lay down the tracks and tear up the trails. Open your heart, let the lifeblood flow. Gotta get on our way, 'cause we're moving too slow. Get on our way. The white prairie, our loved ones lie sleeping. Beyond the dark oceans, in a place far away, we are the navvies who work upon the railway, swinging our hammers in the bright blazing. Sun. Living on stew and drinking bad whiskey, mending our backs till the long days are done. We are the navvies who work upon the railway. 
Swinging our hammers in the bright blazing sun Laying down track and building the bridges Bending our backs till the railroad Silent to be real. 